Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to talk to producer Tony Visconti, the man behind some of the greatest albums by David Bowie and T-Rex. Plus, we'll review the new release from teen sensations, the Jonas Brothers, and then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. They say you can't fight the record industry and win, but a... Uh Oregon woman has proven that adage wrong, Jim. Tanya Anderson, 44, was given one of those nasty Recording Industry Association of America notices in 2005 that she was illegally downloading music and that she was liable for $5,000. Yeah. And she said, wait a minute, you got the wrong person here. So she spent the last three years fighting this lawsuit by the record industry, and uh, a year ago, one of the record industry's own experts admitted that, no, we got the wrong person. She's right. Yeah. She didn't download any music. And now she spent the last year in court trying to get her attorney fees back because yeah. she spent a considerable amount of money fighting for her innocence, proved her innocence. And just last week, a judge agreed with her, and she's being paid a grand total of $107,000 plus $117 in interest. <laughs> so a three-year legal proceeding. i got to figure that whatever she put into the court system, it was worth a lot more than $100,000. But yes, Three indeed. years of that kind of aggravation, that's, yeah. That's amazing. So uh, here we have a rare example of one of the consumers fighting back against the record industry and winning a lawsuit. They make it very difficult for you, Jim. This is how it works. They, they send you one of these nasty letters. They say in, to avoid a long court proceeding, which you will inevitably lose because you don't have the legal yeah. or financial manpower to fight us over a long term, just pay up the four or $5,000 up front and we'll be done with you. Just promise not to download music anymore. And she said, enough. I'm not, I'm not going to put up with this because yeah, I model, didn't do anything wrong. The model has much less to do with using the court system effectively than it does with like the Gambinos or the Genovese. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. They come to you and Shake they make down. you an offer you <laughs> can't refuse. We are in the 
thick of the campaign season. That means we're in the thick of the campaign advertising. And with that, inevitably come stories of musicians suing candidates for using their songs. This is a fun one, Greg. Jackson Brown is suing presidential candidate John McCain as well as the Ohio Republican Party. He says without permission, they used his song Running on Empty in an ad making fun of the Democratic challenger Barack Obama and a uh, proposal he had made about uh, lowering your tire pressure to get a little more gas mileage. Yeah. Uh, they were they were mocking this whole notion and saying, you know, uh, Obama doesn't have an energy plan in this ad. The McCain people are trying to distance themselves, saying it was the local Ohio Republican Party took mm-hmm. out this ad. Please take our name off the lawsuit. Nevertheless, Mr. Brown is looking for uh, at least $75,000 in damages and a, uh, a permanent injunction against use of the song and an apology. You know, I'm worried about the people who want to run our country, Jim, because apparently they can't even do a simple Google search. If anybody I, I who had done a Google search on Jackson Brown would have found this guy has been an activist, a liberal activist for at least the last three decades, they would have found a laundry list yeah. of left-wing causes that he was associated with. So no nukes. Re- you know, McCain yeah. is saying nuclear power. Jackson Brown was Mr. No Nuke. So for the Republicans to appropriate some of his music for one of their ads is really dense. Shake, Rattle, and Roll by Big Joe Turner. One of the voices you hear shouting Shake, Rattle, and Roll in that particular song is one Jerry Wexler, who also produced that session. Wexler died recently at the age of 91, one of the great record producers of all time. He worked on that Big Joe Turner record and countless others, basically put Atlantic Records on the map in the uh, 50s and 60s as partner with Amit Erdogan. Erdogan was the silk-suited schmoozer. He was the guy who was sort of the public face of the label. Wexler was the the roll-up-the-sleeves, behind-the-scenes guy who would get all the dirty work done. He was the guy that actually delivered the money to the radio stations to get the records played. (laughs) But also, you know, he, he would haggle with the bill collectors. But more importantly... He was an artist in his own right. A kid who just loved records when he was growing up in New York City, dropped into Harlem countless times to see jazz and and blues musicians play, really loved the music, and created an environment in the studio where some of the great records could be made, from Ray Charles on up through his, uh, his greatest find, Aretha Franklin, who we took from Columbia Records. We're seeing the passing, Greg, of the last generation of what people in the music business say are the people with ears, the people who could hear the talent, the raw talent, and shape it. You know, Wexler, I think, was was a businessman, no two ways about it. He Mm -hmm. made a lot of money, and he wanted to make a lot of money, but he was also an artist in his own right, as you said. That's a talent that that can't be underestimated. We're not seeing those people anymore. You got the bean crunchers now, and you got the artists, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah, enough can't be said about the fact that this guy had an amazing set of ears in terms of just being able to hear greatness in the studio and being able to record it. He, his, his code word for Jim was immaculate funk. Mm. You know, little simple innovations like miking the drum kit. Nobody had ever really miked a kick drum and a hi-hat before until a guy like Wexler came along and said, let's give this rhythm section some oomph. So you have people like Clyde McFadder and uh, Big Joe Turner and the Clovers and Ray Charles really setting a template for what became rock and roll. 
And uh, as I said, his big find was Aretha Franklin. She was wasting away at Columbia Records making these really lukewarm jazz records. He sat her behind the piano and said, girl, you got to sing like you do in church. Mm-hmm. You know, forget about trying to make pop records. Let's make gospel records for a secular audience. And that's essentially what she did. And his big triumph was her debut record. He ended up making a, a dozen records with Aretha. Every one of them had something to recommend it, but none better than that 1967 debut, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You. And here's the title track from that particular record, Aretha Franklin on Sound Opinions, as produced by Jerry Wexler. Aretha Franklin, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Loved You, on Sound Opinions, produced by Jerry Wexler, Dead at 91. is a little bit of The Man Who Sold the World, uh, one of David Bowie's great early compositions. And the man who produced that particular track is the subject of this next segment, Tony Visconti. Jim, every once in a while on this show, we like to talk to some of the behind-the-scenes players in the music industry, 
people who make great music but aren't necessarily household names. Uh, Jerry Wexler, a great example sure. of a guy who uh, those records wouldn't have been what they were if Wexler hadn't been in the studio. And ditto for Visconti, one of the great producers of the last 30 years. People may not recognize the name. If they do, it's probably because of his work with T-Rex and David Bowie. He's credited on virtually all the T-Rex records. Most of David Bowie's key records were produced by Visconti, but his resume is huge. I mean, he's yeah. got an incredible resume. No, he was the man who crafted the glam rock sound, but he's still working today with people like Alejandro Escovedo and Dean and Britta. You know, he started out as a performer, Greg, scored a regional hit with a song called Long Hair. That story is all told in his recent book, Bowie, Bolin, and the Brooklyn Boy. <laughs> we started our chat with him, though, asking how a boy from Brooklyn ended up becoming a super producer in the UK. You know, I, I came to realize that all the best music at that time was coming out of England. Of course, when the Beatles started importing their music to America, I realized that was even cut way above Elvis's music. And these guys actually wrote their own music, and which Elvis never did. So I, I had to go to England, and I really wished hard to meet an Englishman. I, I didn't know how a kid from Brooklyn was going to get to England. How do you do that? You know, I didn't even know how to buy a plane ticket. But in my publisher's office, I met my first bona fide Englishman, who turned out to be uh, Denny Cordell, who was a famous record producer in the 60s. He produced Procol Harum, Georgie Fame, The Move. Mm. And uh, he played a whiter shade of pale to me in the, my publisher's office, and I nearly fainted when I heard it. It was mm -hmm. one of the most beautiful pieces of music I had ever heard. It was Procol Harum. Later that day, he had a, a recording session for Georgie Fame in New York, and uh, I asked to see the charts, you know, the musical, the, the manuscript paper. I wanted to see how English people wrote music. And uh, he said, we have no charts. Mm. Uh, we roll a joint, and <laughs> we listen to the demo, and then we try a few things out, and, you know, after 10 hours, we have uh, something on tape. And uh, I turned a wider shade of pale, and I said, we don't do that in New York. We don't do that. This is New York 1967. I yeah. said, we, you need notes on paper. If, if you ask these guys to write their own arrangement, it's going to be a charge above union scale and this and that. Mm -hmm. And then Denny, it was Denny's turn to, to turn pale. And uh, he said, what, what am I going to do? So I listened to the demo. I wrote a very rudimentary chart and put it on this new machine that we had in the 60s called a Xerox. <laughs> and uh, we ran down the street with 10 copies and put it in front of the musicians. And within two hours, we had a great recording on tape. You know, my wishes came true. I met my Englishman, and uh, I was <laughs> given a job on the spot. I'm curious. I mean, what were you looking for? I mean, did, did producers sound like something, yeah, this is what I want to do? I mean, did you see yourself making a life's work out of, out of producing records at this point? Well, no, I, I made a few records with American producers and no producers, just an engineer. And I realized that there was something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a lot I didn't know. <laughs> like, how do you get a great guitar sound? How do you get a great vocal sound? Wh where does the echo come from? All these basic questions about recording, which uh, 
In those days, it was uh, the recording studio was a closed shop. If you went in as a musician, you were not allowed to go in the control room. Hmm. It was really primitive. So I realized recording in the UK was much more uh, easygoing. I read that the Beatles had just recorded this album called Revolver, and they they took nine weeks. Whereas in New York, I knew from experience that you'd make an album in three days, or maybe two days, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really totally different. So my job was to learn how to get those sounds, and I didn't want to become a record producer. I just wanted to know how they did that because I still wanted to be an artist. But um, I got this bad news. Just before I, I went to England, my publisher called me in the office, and he said, uh, I have to talk to you about your songs. He goes, uh, I don't like your songs very much. I don't think you're, you're a hit songwriter. I just uh, got very depressed mm. instantly and said, oh, okay, I'm fired, you know, <laughs> you know, back to the drawing board. Maybe I'll, I'll play some more weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, the, <laughs> which I was used to doing. And he said, but I love your recordings. I love your demos. Apparently, I was doing something right, and uh, my boss said, I want you to be the house record producer. Mm. So that's when I really, uh, it, it hit me that the producer's job is creative, and, uh, you know, it's it's almost as good as being a rock star. <laughs> you were, uh, you know, it was a great era, as you said, for, for the kind of innovation in, in the way records were produced. You had Phil Spector in the early 60s defined a certain sound. The Beatles were defining their sound. You got a chance to watch Amit Ardigan and, and Jerry Wexler work, which was a, was a different working method. Did you have a sense of how you wanted to work as a producer, what your role would be in the studio once you got in there with other artists and, and, and helped them make records? Yes. Quite early on, I believed that um, the best kind of record production was kind of uh, audio alchemy. I don't know a better word for it, but the the Beatles definitely were the progenitors of that kind of concept, you know, where Ringo was saying, uh, I don't know, uh, they make a guitar sound like a piano, they make a piano sound like a guitar and all that. And I just love that. I mm-hmm. love the fact that you can play guitar and make it sound like a piano and like how on earth do you do this stuff? So that was the kind of producer I wanted to be. I wanted to work with people who were really keen to do this, to to turn the recording studio, to make the recording studio a wizard's uh, laboratory, <laughs> changing sounds and altering them. That's what I wanted to do. How did you ingratiate yourself with the English artists that would that would take up the 70s that you'd become best known for? How, how did you move from being the house producer at Richmond to going over to the UK and begin making records? Well, luckily, I arrived in London at the right time. It was swing in London, and uh, we didn't have Virgin Airlines or anything like that. I mean, it was really tough to get from one coast to the other. So here I was, one of the few Americans working in London. There was only one, two others that I knew of, and that was Jimmy Miller, who produced the Rolling Stones, Mm -hmm. and Joe Boyd. And I was one of three Americans in all of town. So even though I was at that time, my talents were qu- quite mediocre, I was in demand. P- people wanted to work with this American. Hmm. And uh, they were fa- equally as fascinated with us as we were with them at the time. Bonnie and Clyde were pretty looking people. But I can tell you people, they were the devil's children. When we return after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll hear more about Tony Visconti's transition from Brooklyn boy to British producer, and later I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox.
advanced their reputation and made the graduation into the banking business. Weeks for the sky, sweet talking pride would holler as Bonnie loaded dollars in the July bag. Now one brave man, he tried to take them alone. They left him lying in a pool of blood and laughed about it. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, where we're continuing our discussion with producer Tony Visconti. Right now, you're hearing a little bit of Metal Guru, a song that uh, Visconti produced for T-Rex, one of the key bands, maybe the quintessential glam rock band. In addition to T-Rex, Visconti is primarily associated with one other artist, David Bowie, and he met both of these guys, Mark Bowen of T-Rex and Bowie, at critical stages in their career when they were both young and undiscovered. And I asked Visconti which of these guys he met first. I think Bolin came first. It's kind of a blur, but I think it was a month apart. One day, Danny Cordell turned to me and said, it's time for you to produce your own act. Uh, There was this uh, newspaper called the International Times, and I kept seeing an advert for a band called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I think I heard John Peel mention their name several times on his uh, radio show. And fortunately, that evening, they were playing right around the corner from my office. And I walked around to Tottenham Court Road and went down this uh, little staircase to the UFO Club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> UFO Club. And uh, there were two UFOs sitting on the floor and playing music. And, of course, they were Mark Bolin and Steve Peregrine Took, collectively known as Tyrannosaurus Rex. When my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I could see that there were about 100, 150 kids sitting cross-legged around the the group. And uh, I was used to teenagers screaming when when bands were playing, but this was kind of a a psychedelic folk duo. And the audience was hanging on to every nuance, every, you know, swaying their heads and swaying their bodies. And I kind of was hoping to find the next Beatles, but this band was something I didn't quite understand. And, Mm -hmm. And... that's what drew me to them. And I, I met Mark and gave him my business card and said, I would really love to work with you. I work with Denny Cordell. And uh, he said, he looked at my card, looked at me, n- noticed I was American. And he said, well, you're the seventh producer who uh, contacted us this week. John Lennon was here last night and uh, we're probably going to go with him and all that <laughs> stuff. So that's how I met Mark. <laughs> Of course, John Lennon had no idea who this band was. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did you see any glimmer of the records that you would make in the future once Bolin plugged in? Sure. You could tell it was based on rock and roll. He, he was uh, right on the first album, there were several songs that were basically 12 bar blues. 
And Mark already said that he was a fan of Chuck Berry and uh, earlier blues performers. And he, even his little wiggle in his voice was uh, the something he acquired. He kept playing this record uh, of a blues singer at the wrong speed mm-hmm. and uh, with higher, a faster speed. So he, he would sing along with the record and the vibrato was like, ah, like very fast, you know. <laughs> So I could hear I could hear rock and roll and blues, even though they were very much uh, they they dressed like hippies, they sounded like hippies when they spoke. But you know there was a there was rock and roll in in that music. You work with them for the long haul. I mean, you were with this band almost from the start, uh, from the start, literally, and 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 throughout their career. The evolution was was pretty rapid. I mean, they were absolute sensation in England. I don't think people realize how big this group was in England at the time. Um, and you were right in the middle of that phenomenon. How do you explain it? Well, it's a small country. It's about the size of New Hampshire. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, when you get something, you know, when you get a good idea in England, you'll know within five weeks if you have a hit or not. It's very much unlike America. For about two years, they were making records as Tyrannosaurus Rex, and John Peel was the only DJ who was their champion. And after about uh, four albums, we finally came up with one song that everyone loved, Ride a White Swan. It had that snappy sound. He was using all the riffs he did in his earlier music, but doing it on electric guitar. We had electric bass on that recording. It was the big hit we, we were all waiting for. We are a tall hat, black protruding in the old days. We are a tall hat and a tattooed gown. Ride a white swan that the people of the Belgium where you head long, baby, can't go wrong. Obviously, the, the whole idea of this glam rock fad was creeping into the culture as well. Where did that intersect with what Mark Boland was doing? Well, uh, contemporary rock groups, the guys who were selling records, got all funny. You know, they, got, they, they turned into lumberjacks. They were wearing flannel shirts. Everyone was growing long beards, including the Beatles. The Beatles had beards, too. And uh, <laughs> the teeny boppers lost their idols. You know, they had no one to really look up to as a, as a counterpart. And uh, Mark just went the complete opposite. No beard, no flannel shirt. He was wearing glittery costumes platform boots. He was wearing mascara. I mean, this was unheard of. Mm-hmm. He was absolutely beautiful and, and had an arrogance and a swagger that was anti the hippie movement. Even John Peel was shocked when, when Mark suddenly, literally changed overnight. He just decided to be a rock star. I think Bowie was behind Mark maybe by a month on this. I mean, Bowie was thinking about this. So the, the time was absolutely right for a change. People were bored with the, the bearded rock stars, and they wanted you know, some nice, clean-shaven, pretty boys. And it was just fantastic. And we had the right music and the right look. Nineteen seventy one's Electric Warrior, uh, the T Rex album that produced Bolin's only U.S. top ten hit with Bang a Gong, it really seemed to contain all of the sonic hallmarks that we associate with this great band. That rhythm, that guitar sound, Mark's voice, even that iconic cover. It seemed like the kind of an album an artist was waiting his entire life to make. But you say it really just sort of fell together. 
Well, you're right. Mark was leading to this moment all his life. He wanted to make a great rock and roll album. He grew up on Elvis the same as I did. And, of course, it was in my mind, too. This is what I was going for. I mean, it sounds like it, was, it wasn't that sloppy. I mean, we recorded very quickly the, the band and the vocals and a lot of the guitar solos. But we spent a lot of time adding strings and brass and piano. And, you know, a lot of the magic happened in post-production like that. And then, of course, I, I went upstairs at Trident Studios and spent a few weeks mixing the album. So we did carefully construct it beyond that point, but it was kind of a secret to the T-Rex sound, which Mark and I never forgot, was to record the band very quickly. Don't, don't give anyone a chance to get clever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a lesson I try to impart on the, the younger musicians I work with now who are used to working with Pro Tools and fixing everything. We really couldn't fix anything in those days. If you, you know, you got what you got is what you got. <laughs> is it strange to dance and I dance myself out of the world. The other thing I think it's interesting about uh, Electric Warrior, before we move on, is, is, is the whole idea that this was recorded in sort of hit-and-run style. Have you ever had an experience uh, similar to this, Tony? And, and did you think, given those conditions, that you could make a, a great record that people still regard as a masterpiece uh, decades later? I only worked with one group that wanted to spend months and months in the studio, and that was the Moody Blues. We did make a really good record, uh, The Other Side of Life, it was called. It had uh, that, that hit song, Your Wildest Dreams. So I did get that experience, and there were like there were some people I had spent maybe three months in the studio with making an album, four months. But the Moody Blues broke all records; it was like ten months. <laughs> and uh, I remember one particular experience with them working on a single kick drum for three days. Wow! And you hear about these things, yeah. and uh, I heard about them, but it actually happened to me. <laughs> It's an interesting aspect of your career that uh, you've crafted some records that are considered shining lights in, in what led to punk. But then you were on some records that were also, uh, or worked on some records that were also really square and, and still haven't had their appreciative day. <laughs> I mean, I would champion, I, I love that Moody Blues record, Other Side of Life. I love the Gentle Giant record, Tony. <laughs> I mean, we could sit and, you know, if Cot would let me, he'd start kicking me. You know, we'd just talk about Gentle Giant <laughs> and the Straubs. But you worked on some real cool progressive rock records, too. Yeah, I mean, Gentle Giant was never cool, even when they were, like, cool. <laughs> they They weren't? <laughs> well, I, I even love Giant for a day. Oh, well, That's heard, how big a fan I was. I'm amazed anyone has heard of Gentle Giant. They were because <laughs> I see the royalty statements, and I know we didn't sell much. But I felt I felt by working with a group that was so good, they're so progressive and, and trained musicians and great singers. I, I thought I owed that to the music business. I had to bring people like that to the fore. Uh, if a person can play that well and write that well, why should they take a backseat to, to traditional pop music? You know, I was hoping that was that group was going to be as big as Yes, uh, mm. but um, we were a little too far out. Too far, 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott, and we're talking with producer Tony Visconti. Tony, why don't you tell us about meeting David Bowie? It was like a month after you met Mark Bolin, right? Yes. Well, after a few months of working with Bolin, a month, I don't really remember. This is like my first year there. My boss said, uh, this is the other boss, not David, uh, Denny Cordell. This was David Platts, who was the businessman behind uh, all of this. And he said, uh, you seem to have a, um, uh, an ability to work with these odd musicians. <laughs> so I've got another one for you. And he played uh, David Bowie's first album that he made for DRAM. I think the world of David Bowie, mm-hmm. it was called. And um, I heard this kind of lovely I don't know what you'd describe his voice. It was thin in those days. It wasn't, wasn't very uh, – well, it didn't have the sonority it has now. And he was writing stuff that was all over the place. He was trying to sound like Anthony Newley on a few tracks. Yeah. So that's what I said to him. I said he seems to be all over the wall, all over the place. But, um, yeah, I like him very much. So David Platt says, well, he's in the next room. So all this was prearranged. <laughs> And um, we got on really great. He loved things American. He loved a group called the Fugs. He loved uh, Frank Zappa. And uh, I, lo- you know, I loved the Beatles. And uh, So we had a great bridge there. You know, we were talking about everything all at once. And uh, I remember we, it was a beautiful day. It was probably late autumn. And uh, we said, well, let, let's take a walk. So we walked out of, the, uh, of Oxford Street and kept walking. And we must have walked miles and miles because we ended up in South Kensington Mm. on the King's Road. And uh, I remember Knife in the Water was playing in this art film. And by then we established that we both liked scratchy black and white films. Didn't matter who made them (laughs) as long as they were scratchy and black and white. And they were foreign. (laughs) You know, they were in French or Italian or in this case Polish. And uh, we went to see A Knife in the Water by Roman Polanski. And uh, that was how we spent our first day together. It was just amazing. (laughs) Wow. So Bowie was not, you know, at at times in his career, especially early on, Bowie got this follower reputation. He is, of course, Pop's great chameleon. But, I mean, you're saying already at age 20 he, he was rooted in underground sounds to the point where he could quote the fugs at you? Yes, he he had everything in his collection. He had these records, too. Mm. Uh, But he didn't know what he wanted to do. And my job was to channel him. Like, we have to pick a genre, David, okay? What are we going to do? You know, what are we (laughs) going to do on your first album? So David started writing these songs on the 12-string guitar, and he wrote them pretty quickly. And these are all the songs that are on the first album I produced with him, the Space Oddity album. So we got him going in a direction it wasn't the best direction. I mean, a lot of Bowie fans love that album, but I, I cringe when I hear it. It wasn't, still wasn't right. Really? I mean, Space Oddity is considered, uh, you know, one of those perfect songs, you know? Well, I have to tell the Space Oddity story then. Mm-hmm. I didn't produce it. Yeah. Right. Was the I didn't right. like it. You didn't do. I'm... I didn't like it. <laughs> and how did so, you miss that boat? I recorded most of the album. I rehearsed the album with the group. And at the 11th hour, he and this is what he'll always do, and this is what he's traditionally done now since I've met him, he writes one of his best songs at the end of the album. Because the pressure, he needs to be hyped up, he needs to be pressurized to, to create, unlike other artists who like to go away to the countryside and write. He loves the pressure. He brings a song to me, and it's not folk rock. It's like nothing we've uh, started to record or rehearsed. And uh, also, I listened to it closely, and I said, David, you're, you're stealing things. I said, the, the, <laughs> here am I sitting in a tin can. That's right off the Bookends album by Simon and Garfunkel, which was a big hit album at the time. It wasn't even 
uh, an earlier album. It was out in the charts, and David's like <laughs> already like nicking ideas from that. Mm. He was the the ground control to Major Tom. Is he's putting on a a John Lennon voice there, and there are like a few Beatles alliter- alliterations there. So I said, David, this is one big cheap shot, and that's the exact <laughs> exact expression. And he looked at me very painfully, and he says, I know. He says, but the record company likes it. I was full of principles in those days. I was uh, still hippie-ish. And I said, I can't do this. In good conscience, I can't do this. And uh, he he said, okay, um, what should I do? I go, well, Gus Dudgeon, who is my friend and an engineer that we used, his office was two doors away from mine. I said, Gus would probably do a great job on this. And when I heard it, I regretted it instantly. I thought he did a marvelous job, and I thought the song was great. Mm-hmm. The next time I saw David, I said, this is really great, and, and congratulations, and I think you and Gus should finish the album together. He goes, no, I got that over with. Let's you and I finish the album. For here am I sitting in a tin He went on to have this long relationship with Bowie, uh, even though you took a bit of a break with him during the uh, the glam rock era in, in the early 70s. But you picked up again in the mid-70s and then started working in earnest with him on perhaps his most famous series of records, the Berlin Trilogy, with uh, Brian Eno also participating in those sessions. That was an incredibly creative time for you two guys. And I think in particular that second album, Heroes, and the title track from that record uh, was just an amazing career high point, I think, for both of you. And also Robert Fripp, who played that Titanic guitar on that song. Uh, Can you tell us how you worked that out? Well, Heroes was written a couple of weeks before Fripp came down. We we recorded the backing track, and uh, it's one of the few times that David actually played piano live. And uh, Eno was in the control room with me. And we really didn't know what we had. There were no lyrics yet. It was not called Heroes. It wasn't called anything. So... That thing took weeks to craft. It took about two weeks where we kept slicing bits of tape out and joining it up again and getting rid of this part and that part. It wasn't really recorded in the form that you hear it now. Finally, we got something that sounded like this could be a verse, this could be a chorus. And by that time, uh, we needed to do the guitar work. Fripp was available only one weekend. So he came to Berlin, brought his guitar, no amplifier. He recorded his guitar in the studio. We had to play the the track very, very loud because he was relying on the feedback from the studio monitors. So it was deafening working with him. <laughs> and uh, whereas everyone thinks it's an Ebo, this magical guitar gadget called an Ebo, in fact, it wasn't an Ebo. It was just the feedback of Fripp playing this da, da, that beautiful motif. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't cohesive in his mind. And Fripp said, you know, that wasn't right. Let me have another go at it. So I said, okay, I'll keep that. And uh, Fripp recorded a second time without hearing the first one. It was a little bit more cohesive, but still quite wasn't right. And he said, let me do it again. Just give me another track. I'll do it again. And we silenced the first two tracks, and he did a third pass, which was really great. He he nailed it. And it's still, you know, it was a little bit out of tune. It wasn't quite right. And then I had the bright idea. I said, look, let me just hear what that sounds like with the other two tracks. You never know. And uh, Mm -hmm. we played it 
the, all three tracks together. And, you know, I, I must reiterate that Fripp did not hear the other two tracks when he was doing the third one, so he had no way of being in sync. Mm -hmm. But he was strangely in sync. Mm. And all his little out-of-tune wiggles suddenly worked with the other previously recorded guitars. It seemed to tune up. It got a quality that none of us anticipated. It was this dreamy, wailing quality, almost crying sound in the background. And we were just flabbergasted. This is... Uh, I have to point out, like Mark Bolin, David doesn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio either. He really does believe in the Zen moments. You know, the accidents to him are more important than finessing something. And I totally agree with him. So Fripp, and we all looked at each other. It was just Fripp, myself, and, and Brian Eno in the studio, and David, of course. And we just looked at each other, and we just couldn't believe our luck, how beautiful it sounded and how well it worked out. So after Fripp went and Brian Eno left us, uh, we had to put uh, lyrics and things like percussion. I, I ended up playing the tambourine. Uh, we wanted a cowbell, but we didn't have a cowbell. So we took a tape, a reel of tape that had no tape on it, just a tape reel and a drumstick. or No, I think a metal ashtray. And that sound of a cowbell on Heroes is David hitting the tape reel with a metal ashtray. <laughs> wow. Because, again, impatient. Who could bother? Who could wait till the morning, till the music store opened <laughs> up? To go up? down you're and not, get a cowbell. Right. Yeah. Right. And the sound, it's not your average cowbell. You know, what is, again, what is that sound, which is what I live for as a producer? Producer Tony Visconti, author of Bowie, Bolin, and the Brooklyn Boy. Thank you so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Well, thank you, Jim and Greg. It was really a, a ball speaking to both of you. If you'd like to share your sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the chart-topping new album from the Jonas Brothers, as well as Jim's Desert Island Jukebox pick.
back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You are hearing a little bit of Burning Up, one of the singles from the new album by the Jonas Brothers, a little bit longer. You know, Greg, from time to time we get guff from listeners. Why are you wasting our time with Hannah Montana or the Jonas Brothers? Well, first of all, it's news. These guys in week one of the new release sold 517,000 records, third biggest selling album already of the year. They have two albums in the top ten. The release of the new disc propelled their last self-titled effort back into the top ten. We haven't seen that happen since In Sync back in 99. You can't escape these people. Let's note, first of all, what the story was. There's three brothers. There's Nick, who's the youngest, at 15, who is the leader. He was the breakout star, was in a bunch of Broadway uh, productions, made a Christian pop album that caught the attention of Columbia. But Columbia was mindful of Hanson and the model of the brother act. Remember Mbop from a bunch of years ago? Yeah, sure. They said, why don't you work with your two brothers? The Jonas Brothers were formed. That first Columbia record went nowhere, but Radio Disney had liked it, so Disney-owned Hollywood Records picked these guys up and put the machine to work full bore, mainly (laughs) on Hannah Montana. They've been everywhere, all sorts of compilations and movies, the new Camp Rock movie, but it was the Hannah Montana connection that made them stars. Let's listen to B.B. Good, the first track on the new album, A Little Bit Longer, by the Jonas Brothers on Sound Opinions, and then we'll give you our thoughts. You'll be the one that moves me I've been hurt before So baby, promise that you're gonna be true I'm gonna be, be good So tell me that you're gonna be good too B.B. Good from the Jonas Brothers, a little bit longer. What an impressive marketing machine they had behind them, Jim. I cannot say enough about the Walt Disney Company and its trifecta of the Disney Channel, Radio Disney, and Hollywood Records. They've got the big media completely wrapped up. Every girl I've talked to in the last three months, that's all they want to talk about is this band. What's your favorite band? Two words, Jonas Brothers. Over and over and over Actually, again. you can put it together and make one word. They're the Joe Bros yeah, to the yeah, hardcore yeah. fan. What do you like about them? They're cute. That's yep, the response yeah. you get. They're cute. And, and that seems to be enough to sell a lot of records. What we have here is a sort of a watered-down power pop record. Guitar-driven, cheerful, even when they're singing about kind of a downside of romance. It still sounds upbeat and zesty. You know, you know what this is? This is Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield, except not as good. It is a very mild-mannered guitar-based pop record. Fairly chaste. I know you disagree, uh, but I think this is a very chaste no, record. No, I'm not buying. See, see, you know, look, the boys famously wear these purity rings, which are symbols that yeah. they will remain unsullied until marriage. But at the same time, they are unleashing these tornadoes of lust. You know, there is no force <laughs> yeah. greater than 20,000 pubescent girls screaming their heads you off. You make it's, them sound it, like Little Richard or something. They're not anywhere near that That category. is what it's about. I wish they were Little Richard. Listen to B.B. Good, right? Please Please Me by the Beatles is a song about, you know, guys trying to talk a girl into into. Being nice to him in a physical way. That's what BB Good is. And there's this creepy moment. The whole song builds to this climax. Listen, girl, 
You gotta be good. I don't wanna hurt you. I wanna kiss you! Listen, girl, you gotta be good. I don't wanna hurt you. I want to kiss you. Oh you know, he God. screams and it's like, it's, that could be about a date rape There's rather no, than a romance. Oh, you are reading so much into it. There's nothing creepy about that song. The only thing, only thing creepy about it is how bad it is. The, the only other song that I would like to mention here is the last song on the record, which is the one sort of diversion from this whole teen romance uh, cycle that they're on. It's a song called A Little Bit Longer. It, it refers to Nick Jonas's battle with diabetes, and right. that is the one awe you know, lighter waving uh, moment in the in the concerts that get you know that knocks all the girls down. You yeah, know? but the thing that kills me is that that song and every song on the record. Look, there's two kinds of singing in the world. There is show tune singing, and there is rock singing. Yeah, we've talked about this in American Idol. How how even when some of those singers cover a rock song, mm-hmm. it always sounds like they're on Broadway, you know, big and bombastic. Right? That is the Jonas Brothers. This is there's nothing rock about this. What what really disturbs me about this record is the reception it is getting from rock critics. You put some guitars on a song and. Yeah. and Keep it simple, and suddenly they're they're the next new big band. You got to be kidding well, me! But this is because there is a well-tuned machine, and our our well, sound opinions. Yeah, production... we go back to Disney Company. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the fans. The, the the sound opinions production team will soon discover this. You know, the Washington Post critic dared to dismiss one of the brothers as Nick and Kevin and the other guy, yeah. and they got like tens of thousands of angry emails. Yeah. We are no doubt in for that, but you know that doesn't mean that a lot of people like them. That doesn't mean they're good. If we have to rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, what do you say? It's a trash it. I agree. It's a trash it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as we possibly can, we take a trip to the Desert Island and drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. And this week, it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Well, Greg, we did trash the Jonas Brothers, but I don't want people to think I am anti-bubblegum. Either in the present, I, for example, uh, champion Miley's new record, and, and I love the Naked Brothers, I just don't like the Jonas <laughs> Brothers, or, or the past. I mean, we should do a show at some point about the history of bubblegum rock, because there's been a lot of great stuff. But I think that the band that tops the all-time bubblegum best-of list has to be the Monkees. You know, here's a manufactured group. Not all of them could even play. They were cast to be an American TV show version of The Beatles of a Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. We all know that story, okay? What's interesting, and this is why even the Jonas Brothers, you know, may may have hope here. What's interesting is what happened in the Monkees after the TV show went off the air. was a huge hit, but the Beatles changed fast. The 60s changed fast. By 1968, it was over. After two or three seasons, the monkeys were off TV. What did they do then? Do you remember? They made a movie. They made a movie. They made a movie called Head that was written by a young aspiring actor named Jack Nicholson who did nothing but sit around and get stoned off his <laughs> gourd and work uh, on a non-script. Really, there's hardly any right. story with director Bob Raffleson. This movie was designed to destroy the cute, goody-goody, teeny-bopper image that the TV series had created that were on a million lunchboxes, the lovable monkeys, you know, David Jones and Mike Nesmith all <laughs> smiley with those hats, right? 
you know, the, the show is on VH1 again. It's so amazing when you watch that show of, of what they were creating. <laughs> and you can see them sneering behind it. By 68, the monkeys were taking drugs. They were working with people who were taking drugs. Everybody was taking drugs. <laughs> they made this classic of psychedelia called Head. They still had great songwriters at their disposal. Neil Diamond had written many of the best songs, of course. The immortal uh, songwriting team of Jerry Goffin and Carol King had worked on a lot of their stuff. So the movie, while being, you know, really anti-establishment and weird and twisted and making fun of the whole canned marketing image of the monkeys, still had great music, including Mike Nesmith's Circle Sky, which many people point to as a, you know, one of the roots of alternative country, but the song I'm going to play as well, a Geffen King composition called The Porpoise Song, which uh, opens the movie. They're running along a bridge, they jump into the water, (laughs) and suddenly they're floating with the mermaids and the porpoises, the (laughs) dolphins. At the same time, the uh, experiments on ketamine were being done that inspired the Day of the Dolphin, where if you took enough of this psychedelic drug, you could speak dolphin language. That was actually like a real (laughs) scientific thought, and these were the 60s after all, okay? The porpoise song comes from all of this. It's a great song about drugs, about bubblegum, about monkeys, about dolphins. The porpoise song on Sound of Indians. Porpoise song by the monkeys on Sound Opinions, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Jonas Brothers, let's hear you do a song that good. Mr. <laughs> Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, very exciting stuff next week from bubblegum to heavy metal. We're going to give you a course in heavy metal 101 next week. The roots of one of the great genres of all time. We have some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Our intern is Dylan Peterson, our executive producer, our fearless leader, the man who can be our hero, but just for one day, Tori Southside Malatia. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Pick up the phone. Answer me New messages. Hey guys, this is Bryant Bush from Salt Lake City. And uh, I love your show and I had to call in because I was so glad to hear about your take on Scarlett Johansson. I heard about her album of mostly Tom Waits covers on another music podcast in which the DJs gushed disgustingly and went on and on about the strength and beauty of her voice and how brave she was to take on the music of Waits. I'm actually a little reluctant to talk to you guys about this 
because if you play this message, you'll be almost obliged to play her music again, and I don't know if I could take it even a little bit. not a Waits fan, but I played the other podcast for a friend who'd saved his money to take his wife to see Waits in New York for their anniversary, and his jaw just dropped in unbelief. Why? Was about all he could say. It's so obviously an attempt to use her established name to live out her misguided fantasies, and I can't believe anyone would like it. And I was so glad when I heard you guys' take on it and established, you know, the way I felt about it. So thanks, and keep up the good work. Hey, Jim and Greg, what's going on? This is Ben from Burbank, California. Listening to the podcast for a couple of years now. I'd love it. Anyway, I'm sure you guys are getting lots of feedback about your movie stars that want to become singers segment that you did recently. And I have to say, it was a good little list, even though it was, you know, should have done a whole episode on it. Uh, I have to take exception with your little jab at William Shatner towards the end of the segment. Um, while his version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is a joke, I think that's the way he planned it. Picture yourself on a train in a station with plasticine porters, with looking glass ties. He does everything with tongue planted firmly in cheek, and he knows he can't sing, so they've got to give him a break. Not to mention, he came out with a really good album uh, a few years ago, which was co-written and produced by Ben Folds, called Has Been. It has a bunch of tracks featuring Henry Rollins and Amy Mann and a really killer version of Pulp's Common People with Joe Jackson. She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. And I think it's killer. So uh, leave, uh, leave Bill alone. I think he's, he knows where he stands in his music career, and he's not taking himself too seriously like some of the people you mentioned. Anyway, keep up the good work, guys. Peace out. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. Hey guys, this is Ryan Swingle from Athens, Georgia, calling about the Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison record discussion. I am a public defender and a believer, and I just, I almost got choked up listening to you guys talk about Cash and his closing number, Greystone Chapel, and the sentiments uh, that you expressed about him as a, as a sinner trusting God to save him and great show, great discussion. Now this gray stone chapel here at Folsom It has a touch of God's hand on every stone It's a flower of light and a field of darkness And it's given me the strength to carry on True story is I was walking to the parking deck with my iPod in my pocket. After a day of work, he listened to the show on my way home. I passed a car with a bumper sticker in black that just said, God bless Johnny Cash. Got my car, drove home, and heard your show. Loved it. Thanks for doing it. Appreciate it. Bye.
No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.